Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode number 11 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And there he is. He is back after his vacation last week. Jacob is back in studio, so we don't have to listen to another episode of Just Me, although the feedback we got seemed to be pretty nice for the most part. So thank you all so much for the very kind comments and reviews and support of last week's episode featuring myself alone. But now that Jacob is back, we, of course, are going to get straight to the big issues of the day. But first, Jacob, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you were and what you were doing uh, last week? So I got to spend some time with family, which is always good. And uh, on the way back, I actually stopped at a place called Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Some of you may have heard of it. It's famous for being right there next to Dollywood. I believe it's uh, it's Gatlinburg is where Dollywood is. So you got Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg right next to one another. And on the way, I just spent the night there, so I figured, well, I've got time to look at one museum. There's a whole bunch of museums, nice little theme parks and stuff all around the area. And so I asked someone, a waitress, if she would recommend the Titanic Museum. And then there was a local Hollywood museum. I had a bunch of... I think it's got a bunch of stuffed features of like uh, you know, John Wayne, I don't know, I think Elvis and a bunch of other famous people who were in the music industry in Hollywood back in the 50s and 60s. And she recommended the Titanic Museum. So I stopped off there and definitely recommend it's, uh, it. It really gives you a sense of nostalgia for the Edwardian era because they've got uh, actual relics from the Titanic in that museum. The whole thing is $30. So I was kind of surprised it was that high. I was thinking to myself, how is this going to be worth $30? But it's definitely... Well worth your time if you're ever able to make it that way, and it really, it really gives you a sense of what life was like in uh, in the West at the right before Western civilization decided to commit suicide in World War One. Um, it really because this ship, of course, it was sailing from Southampton, England, to New York City. It had uh, some of the most some of the richest and most famous people in the world on this ship, and uh, just the the piety and really the religiosity of the people on the ship really comes out in the stories that um, that they tell at the museum. And it just, you know, if you can just imagine if you got some of the richest and most famous people in the world today and so-called whatever is left of Western civilization today that were to take a, a, you know, a liner from England to New York City, I'm sure you can just imagine the debauchery that would occur on that ship. You know, you got a bunch of Jeffrey Epsteins on this on this ship sailing today. But at the time, like the Jeffrey Epsteins of that day were actually very, uh, very religious, very pious, very upstanding moral people. And uh, it just really really gives you a sense of how far Western civilization has fallen to go through that museum. Definitely well worth a visit if you're ever in the area. Definitely sounds like it. I've been to a handful of uh, Titanic museums and a few other things like that with certainly the uh, – uh, can respect the, the Elvis memorabilia as well. I remember going on a little pilgrimage when I was 16 for my 16th birthday to um, the, the mecca of the Elvis world, which of course was Memphis, Tennessee, as well as his birthplace in Tupelo, Mississippi, which was super great. So yeah, but you're definitely right. Uh, it's, it's a very sad and somber note on which we must know – that Western civilization has fallen so far, and it's going to fall even farther and even harder before it comes even close to getting back up. And nothing better represents this than you, you guys have all heard about it. It's been all the talk. This happened right around the time we recorded the last episode, and I definitely knew we'd want to talk about this in the next episode. What does the world come to that now, I guess, Dr. Seuss is offensive? I mean, they really have nothing left here, guys. They, Dr. Seuss, this is all the proof you need that cancel culture is not going to stop. And I think it's time that we realized what cancel culture really is and who's really responsible for it. So, Jacob, you actually had a story that you told. Do uh, you want to tell that story again where you said um, – you, you told me this offline – uh, where you went down to visit family and you and a family member discussed the whole Dr. Seuss thing. And uh, what uh, happened with that? 
Well, the of course, the way information works in this day and age when no one reads newspapers and no one follows the same source of news is you'll have a news story will break. The major legacy outlets will report the news. Then for the right, conservative outlets will then pick up the stories that the left, that the mainstream media, which is on the left, breaks. And then they slowly – they report it, and then it slowly trickles down through social media. And then it slowly trickles down from social media to word of mouth. So people who don't you know, don't really follow the news that much, they hear it from friends who heard it from somebody else who saw something on social media, who was, which was reposted from Facebook, which is eventually kind of, you know, kind of bounced down the line. So the story that I heard from someone that was a family member, they said they were under the impression that Biden was behind the cancellation. All the memes of that Seuss. like the memes going around, they're like, oh, Trump defeated ISIS. Joe Biden defeated Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss. You yeah. know, the, the boomer memes, which are kind of. <laughs> They're kind of they're, – they're cute, I guess, but it's not accurate, right? No, no, not at all. Biden had nothing to do with it. Biden is, Biden is basically – well, what we've reached the point in our country that the original progressives 100 years ago, 120 years ago feared in which corporations would be more powerful than government and they would be able to force government and bend government to its will. And Biden is simply doing – he's simply following the culture. He's not setting any kind of trend. He's just keeping up with the trends. Exactly, and that's the point that needs to be made about cancel culture at this point is that when you think about it realistically – the government cannot and does not cancel people because of a little something you may have heard of called the United States Constitution. At this point, all the biggest victims of cancel culture are targeted by corporations. You know, it wasn't the government that fired Gina Carano from The Mandalorian. It wasn't the government that ordered Dr. Seuss books to be banned. It was – and it was the company. It was Dr. Seuss Enterprises itself, which announced, by the way, they made the announcement – on his birthday, March 2nd, on Dr. Seuss's birthday, Theodore Seuss Geisel's birthday, that they were going to be shutting down all reproduction and all printing and taking out of circulation six books, including his very first book under the Seuss pen name, And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street, which I loved as a kid. That was one of my absolute favorites as a kid, and that really is a testament as well. He wrote these books in the 30s, and kids are still being read these books today, as at least as recently as the 90s when I was a kid. He has endured for that long, for well over half a century, and they're just now finally coming for him. Why? Again, not because government. It's not because Biden or Kamala Harris went to them and said, yo, you got you to gotta cancel these books. No, no, no. They are caving to a culture that in a way is both created and encouraged by the corporations. You know, this, And this is different from 2020. You know, I said 2020 is the year I became very anti-corporation and honestly almost anti-capitalist at this point with just how bad – our so-called free market capitalist system has gotten that in 2020, you did see the corporations kind of take point from and take the lead of the government with regards to the COVID lockdowns and the BLM riots. In both cases, you know, the government led the way in, oh, yeah, you got to shut down everything, stop going to work, stop going to school, do everything we say, put a mask on your face, hole up in your home and don't leave, don't do anything. And corporations said, oh, yeah, solidarity. We're all in this together. Yeah, do what the government says. And then the BLM riots, same thing, where most state or local jurisdictions did nothing to control the race riots that burned cities to the ground. And all the corporations did in response was tweet out Black Power Fists or hashtag Black Lives Matter because they didn't care. Because, again, if a couple of targets get looted, targets bottom line is not affected. Whereas, you know, a mom and pop shop getting burned to the ground with no insurance, that's not coming back. So they were kind of taking the lead from the government in those cases. But here, they are the ones taking the lead now. Again, Disney with Gina Carano and everything else going on. 
and we really need to address this and point out this the fact that we now have a free market this idea of a free market approach to cancel culture like oh create your own bro like i never i gotta admit i had a lot of friends who were on board with this i never understood all the craze and the hype over gina carano going to work with ben shapiro and a friend of mine put it very bluntly he said like yeah you got fired by one of the biggest corporations in one of the biggest names in the world disney you got fired from one of the hottest tv shows right now the mandalorian and you're Constellation Prize, did you get to go make a movie for the Daily Wire with Ben Shapiro? Like, is that supposed to be some big epic blow? I mean, I I don't know. I, I guess it's all relative. Rome wasn't built in a day. I don't know. But either way, this is really all the proof you need that, if anything, we as a society are already heading straight towards fascism. But it's not courtesy of the government. It's courtesy of the markets, the so-called free markets. We're heading towards corporate fascism here, people. This is not even the government clamping down and shutting you down and censoring you. It's It wasn't the government that shut down President Trump and censored him. It was not the government that now says Dr. Seuss is offensive. It's corporations that have done that. And until we acknowledge that these corporations are the real problem, we're not going to make any serious progress with this. That is the main thing about cancel culture that I think a lot of people on the right still don't get. But it is important that we talk about it nonetheless. Well, when, you, when conservatives attack cancel culture, they're attacking a symptom. It's like whenever they were attacking the riots last year during June, people were, were attacking people who were acting violently, attacking the looting, the burning, all that. And, of course, obviously you should condemn that, but that's a symptom of the bigger problem. If you want – you know, it's one thing to attack the looting and burning if you don't think that they're looting and burning for a good cause. If you literally believe that the police are killing innocent black people every single week, just murdering them and getting away with it, then your attitude toward looting and burning and pillaging and violence is going to be a lot less hostile than if you believe that this entire BLM movement is based on a pack of lies. But what we saw last year was a genuine cultural revolution. So the, the corporations, they, they looked out and they saw mobs, thousands and thousands of people burning cop cars, attacking people at random, burning down corporations, literally destroying, basically taking over cities. And the police not being able to do anything about it, the governors and mayors not doing anything about it because they sympathize with the calls of the looters. So the corporations look at this and they're like, well, if that mob, if, if BLM gets mad at our corporation, they'll be able to run through our headquarters and burn our headquarters down, destroy our company, and the police won't protect us. The National Guard won't protect us. So if we want to – we need to stay on their good side. And – you know, this is what happened with Dr. Seuss is the reason this all came about whenever after the George Floyd riots, they all got together and they brought in experts, supposedly, I guess, like black nationalist experts to sit down and they asked them, why do you find, well, you know, is there anything in our material that you find offensive? And they pointed out instances that don't quite meet the woke criteria of today that didn't really comport with the cultural revolution. They basically brought in a bunch of cultural censors to look over their work, over Dr. Seuss's work. And ask them which what what all needs to be canceled, and they chose these three books that they these three books need to be canceled because they don't match the cultural criteria. Six books actually. Oh, six books. Yeah. yeah. It's, and it's a very similar. Imagine if if this country and this is something that a lot of boomers would have been able to relate to. If you if you imagine an alternate universe in which the United States is taken over by a communist dictatorship, so we have the cultural revolution in this country, except it's Marxist. And this is what would happen. The censors would come through. They would uh, they would reevaluate all American culture, all American literature, all American movies, and they would decide to ban anything that does not, that isn't revolutionary enough, that doesn't match the revolution's ideology. And any future art would have to go through the censors. This is what happens when you're put through a cultural revolution. 
and conservatives, because so many of them live, and this isn't a knock on them, but it's just reality. So many of them live in rural areas. They're so far away from the centers of culture and where culture is made that they don't find out about this stuff until some of their childhood favorites are getting canceled and put out of print. And then it's like, whoa, whoa, this is going on. This is getting silly. No, it's not silly. It's called a revolution. This is what happens when your society is taken over by a cultural revolution. So the correct way to, to counter this isn't to uh, go on some kind of nostalgic screed about how wonderful Dr. Seuss is and how it's we're, as a society we're getting ridiculous and canceling Dr. Seuss. No, no, no. The correct way to counter this is to go pull up the exact examples that they're using for why they're canceling Dr. Seuss and refute the claims that those are actually racist and defend those books and those illustrations. Because in reality, we've always had cancel culture. I mean, used to, if there was a, back when we were a really Christian society, pornographers got canceled. Like a person who made a movie that was too raunchy, they would get canceled. People wouldn't watch their movies. They would be blacklisted from, you know, movie reviewers would slam them. But as society and culture changes in the urban areas as they're driving culture to the left, you're not going to be able to defeat this by just attacking the symptoms. You've got to go for the root cause. You've got to take Dr. Seuss's books and say, no, this is not racist. This is actually pretty funny. And if you don't have a sense of humor and you don't like our American folklore and culture, you need to get out of our country. Exactly. And cancel culture is definitely one of the big weapons that is going to be used from the non-governmental side of things. Again, we have our own problems to worry about with the government, with Biden and Harris in office, the Democrats in complete control. That's a whole nother monster. But definitely on the outside, outside of the federal government, cancel culture is going to be one of the biggest tools that the foot soldiers of the left will be continuing to use against us. And that's why it is so important that cancel culture was, in fact, the main theme of this year's CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC 2021. Their theme was, quote, America Uncanceled. Uh, I did not get to go to this one, unfortunately. I did go to the last one last year, and that was a great time. It was my first time going. Uh, and that happened the weekend right before last week's episode. So, of course, I really wanted to talk about it. I did mention that in the last episode, but, of course, I couldn't do it justice without Jacob here for the both of us to talk about it together. And that's exactly what we're going to do. So we're going to go back and review and summarize and give our thoughts on the best speeches from CPAC. Obviously not counting the president because his speech was by far the best just by default. Uh, but the rest were... There were some pretty good ones in there and also some fairly cringe ones. So, Jacob, want to get us started here? Well, the theme, America Uncanceled, is kind of ironic because it happened in the same week that Dr. Seuss, one of the probably the most beloved children's author, was being canceled. So, in a way, it's like the culture overlords was saying... Nope, we're actually canceling America while you're pretending that America isn't canceled. So that, that in itself is kind of ironic. But, uh, you know, we're going to be pretty critical of CPAC for obvious reasons, but I think it's only natural and only fair that we, we, we do bring out some positive speeches that were given at CPAC. We do bring out to point out some, uh, some, some things that were said, some speakers that they brought in that actually did do a good job and represented what the, where the base is at. And this is really... This is really what this show, uh, whenever we criticize the right or the so-called right, this is one of our biggest pet peeves is that the average man and woman on the street who is Republican and is conservative does not have representation in American politics. And it's because the most of the people who run the Republican Party, most of the people who run the think tanks, they do not align socially with the majority of Republican voters. And their their interests are not necessarily the voters' interests. But that being said, uh, this was obviously – this was held in Florida. Because Florida is one of the few states in the country 
that still feels feels like America. That originally is is normally held right around here at Oxon Hill, Maryland, but because you know, national, the, the National Harbor, yeah, but because that uh, we've got a governor in Maryland who decides that he's more interested in what the local leftist, the what the northeastern press writes about him, then he of course is going to follow Dr. Fauci to you know, and whatever Dr. Fauci thinks is correct when it comes to pol- anti-COVID policy. So obviously, the just the they considered it unsafe to have that many people in a in a conference room, so they decided to move it to Orlando. But obviously, Ron DeSantis, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, gave uh, the opening speech, and I, I listened to his speech. It was actually a fantastic speech. Rather than repeat a bunch of platitudes like a lot of Republican politicians like to do, he actually uh, defended his record as governor of Florida. He did what a normal sitting governor should do whenever he's hosting something like this. He got up and he explained how he had, what all he had done as governor and how he had advanced conservative issues that the voters actually care about. And, you know, the thing about DeSantis is he barely scraped by. Florida elections are always close. They're always, you know, if you win in Florida, you've won by a razor's margin. But DeSantis actually moved the state to the right because who would have thought that Trump, after going down in most uh, most of the other states, he would actually increase his voter, his his victory percentage by four points in the state of Florida. I mean, Which the is idea, a landslide by Florida standards. Right. That's an absolute landslide. Nobody would thought if you were to go back in, I mean, even 30 years, 30, 20, 30 years, and you would have said that one day a Republican president is going to win Florida by four points, people would have kind of laughed at you. I mean, I don't know what Ronald Reagan went by, but it, at the time from 1990, well, from 1988 to the president, uh, to the president, normally it was by like half a percentage point. So Ron DeSantis has, mo- has moved the state to the right. Florida has become that. Florida is becoming really a hub of conservatism. It's almost like the new Texas at this point. It it is. It really is. It's and it's really close to Texas. And it's uh, when you when you look at the vote margins, it's it actually pretty close. As Texas slowly trends purple, Florida is trending more and more red, kind of going the same direction that Ohio is going. Ohio and Iowa and Iowa, yeah, those are, which were previously battleground states, and Florida in particular being worth twenty nine electoral votes. It's tied with New York for the third largest state electorally only behind texas and california correct yeah so if ron DeSantis were to run for if the re-election is governor's re-election were this year he would win i'm confident he would win in a landslide and uh, it's no surprise that in the cpac straw poll uh he came in second after former president trump and of of people who would prefer who would they ask people who they would prefer to run in 2024 ron DeSantis got the most votes when you take trump out of the equation so he gave a really good speech on his on his record christy Nome, the governor of south dakota she gave a really good speech. She and again, she just focused on issues that affect South Dakota. On her, she talked about her record, about her record of keeping the state open. How she never they didn't have lockdowns, and they've still been booming. Business has been doing really well. I mean, obviously, it's a low populated state, but still, her speech focused on issues that the rank and file conservative cares about. Rick Grinnell, fantastic foreign policy speech. One of the best speeches of the night, I thought. And because the thing with Rick Grinnell, he was the ambassador. For those that don't know, he was the ambassador to Germany. He was uh, he has actually uh, been in the in the I guess you could say in the mix up with the foreign policy establishment in Washington, D.C. And in his speech, he actually pointed out that the foreign policy establishment really is a monolith in D.C. Everyone has it doesn't matter if you're Democrat independent. Everyone has the same ideology. And this is the way it is with lifelong people who work their entire lives in the foreign service or at the State Department. Their view of America as a post as a post Cold War hegemon. Is that the United States State Department? Is that the State Department and Foreign the Foreign Service should project liberal values to the rest of the country, and that if we, we should try to use carrots, but if we can't get our way with carrots, we should use a stick. 
And if we can't do it openly through the State Department and the Foreign Service, then we can empower American NGOs to go over there, such as the Soros NGOs, to go over to other countries and undermine their society. And many times these are traditional conservative societies, and these NGOs will go over there and undermine those societies by – I mean you think about a little tiny country, you pour in $5 million into an NGO to empower – activists. I mean, those activists are going to obviously receive an outsized voice. So Rick Grinnell did a fantastic job of pointing out how you, if you're going to have an America first foreign policy, you're going to have to challenge the monolithic th- uh, thought process of the D.C. establishment and the State Department. Uh, Don Jr., excellent speech. He gave a fantastic speech. And again, you know, the ones that did that, I think, did a really good job in portraying the America first nationalist sentiment where the base of the party is and really always has been to a certain extent, even if they didn't know it, were the people who stuck to issues that the base cares about. They didn't go back to play in John McCain. They didn't go back to play in George W. Bush or try to make America first into something it's not. They just basically played to the base and gave through the people the red meat they wanted. And Don Jr. did an excellent job of mixing things up in his attack on Liz Cheney. Now, listen, the one thing I'll say for Liz Cheney is I'm sure she has a lot of bipartisan support because if there's one thing that she and Joe Biden definitely want to do, it's bomb the Middle East. <laughs> so true, folks. So true. Yeah. So, so whatever you see, uh, anytime you're going to uh, slam, if you really want to slam the old guard of the Republican Party, just slam the Iraq war, slam the warmongers. I mean, those people are so salty that, that they've lost their party. They, uh, I mean, Neocon is literally a slur now, thanks to Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah. And I make the argument that if John McCain had won in 2008 and won re-election in 2012, <clears throat> Trump would have run as, as a, Democrat. a Democrat in 2016. He would have picked Hillary as his VP. Exactly. And he would have won. Yep. And we'd have uh, would be in the second term of President Donald Trump with Hillary Clinton as his VP. So, uh, but yeah, people people are really sick of the of the uh, the warmongering, and uh, we're going to actually <laughs> talk about that a little bit more whenever we get down to the former Secretary of State under President Trump. But uh, just uh, another just another example of someone who did a really fantastic job speaking. It was uh, Josh Hawley. He actually he actually gave a, a really good speech, and this is somebody. It really does uh, get it when it comes to American nationalism and Trumpism, if you will. You know that we are facing a crisis in our country. This is one of the great moments of crisis in American history. We're facing a fight for the republic itself, and we are facing an unprecedented alliance of radical liberals and the biggest, most powerful corporations in the history of the world. They are standing together. You know who I mean. People like Google, Facebook, if you heard of them, Twitter. These companies have more power than any companies in American history, and they're allying with the radical left to try to impose their agenda on this country. They want to run this country, and if we don't do something, they are going to. And we've got a word for that. It's called oligarchy. And that's what we're facing in America right now. And we've got a basic choice. We can have a republic where the people rule, or we can have an oligarchy where big tech and the liberals rule. And that is the choice. That is the challenge. So true. Like, again, that's why I love this guy so much. Although I will say, while we're talking about Josh Hawley, I have to get this out of the way. Josh, man, Senator Hawley, you had one job, dude. You had one job. He was going for the perfect streak, by the way, Jacob. I'm not sure if you knew this. He was going for the perfect streak of voting no on every single one of Biden's cabinet nominees. Oh, he broke that streak? He broke that streak. He voted in favor of confirming Cecilia Rouse 
for the Council of Economic Advisors. And she got 95 votes overall with four votes in opposition. He voted for the one. I don't know who this person is and why he voted for her of all people. Especially if he goes right back to voting no at this point. It doesn't matter because he was the one who had that streak going for the longest time. I really just want to see him vote no on all <laughs> yeah, want to keep that kill streak alive. Huh? That, keep that 25 kill streak and get a tactical nuke as a result. <laughs> but no, unfortunately, he didn't keep that streak alive, so he can't use that anymore. But he's yeah. still good. I still like him a lot. I would still put him right up there with Ron DeSantis as a good non-Trump frontrunner for 2024. Yeah, and he, he really gets it right. He's one of the few who actually understands the oligarchical complex of the, uh, the corporate uh, federal, if you will, um, collusion between the Democrats, between the D.C. establishment and corporate America, Silicon Valley. Although I will say if you listen to what he just said, if you go back and play that clip again, uh, he really is trying to wed Reagan conservatism with the current moment that we're in, which I understand. I don't necessarily know that he he sees it as tactical. But I do understand people who want to take that approach because you do have an entire generation of people who grew up under during the Cold War and came of age during the Reagan era. And it's it's really hard to try to make them understand that government is not the problem right now. Government is the solution to this problem of oligarchy and of big tech monopoly. That's where we are right now. Right. We're we not, have no other choice. Exactly. We're not looking to the private, private sector to fix this problem. We are looking to government for a redress of these grievances. We are being suppressed and um, you know our freedoms are being threatened by the private sector. So – at the time, yes, government was the problem, not the solution, and that was fine for that era. But he, you know, I understand where he's trying to he's trying to wed the two, like with well, this were a republic run by the people, talking about big tech. But right now, we need conservatives who are going. To, we need big government conservatives who are going to step in and are willing to wield power the same way that Democrats are willing to wield power. We have to stand up and take our stand on the Constitution of the United States and the Declaration of Independence, because last time I checked, the Declaration of Independence said that our inalienable rights to life and liberty come from God and not from government. Is that right? I mean, am I forgetting something? And I also thought, last I checked, I thought that the Declaration said that our rights come from God, not from Google. Is that right? So It's a good line. It's, yeah. it's a good applause line, but... The, yeah, the problem is you know, the Declaration of Independence is kind of irrelevant. In this particular situation, so he's trying to get in a uh, you know throwing in an applause line where yeah yeah everyone agrees the Declaration of Independence says our rights come from God not from government not from Google, but the Declaration of Independence was talking about government tyranny. It wasn't talking about corporate tyranny. And the Constitution was later created to protect the people from government. It wasn't created to protect people from corporations. So really, uh, I understand where he's coming from, trying to explain it to people that don't really understand. Maybe they're retired and they haven't come of age in this uh, oligarchical age. But that's the fight of our time to make the rule of the people an actual thing again, to restore the sovereignty of the American people. You know what? That's always been the fight. That's the fight of liberty. That's been the fight of liberty since the beginning of human history. You've always got a small group of people who think they know best and they ought to be in charge, and they ought to be able to tell us what to think and do. He is correct. We have There always has been a small group of people that wanted to be in charge and tell everyone else what to do. But here's a key. Jeff Bezos' grandfather, his maternal grandfather, worked for the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission at the height of the Cold War. If you were a genius at the time, if you had an extremely high IQ, which Jeff Bezos apparently has an extremely high IQ, during the height of the Cold War, if you were an American patriot, or if you just wanted to make money, 
where would you go? You wouldn't go to Silicon Valley. There was no Silicon Valley at the time. As far as what we think of Silicon Valley, you would go work for the government and you would go serve your country at a very, very high salary. And we see, so Jeff Bezos' grandfather worked for the government, served his country. And now, and when we're no longer in the Cold War, his grandson has created a Leviathan that is undermining the very country that his grandfather served. So this is a unique time in American history. This is something that we've never had. You know, that small group of people that we want to keep from telling us how to live our lives, they're not in government anymore. Government no longer offers them what they want, which is money. I mean, that's the real question, isn't it? In this moment, in this moment of crisis, our country needs us to take a stand. In this moment of crisis, our country needs us to stand up and to say we will not be ruled by giant corporations and the liberal elite. We will not be told what to do by these modern-day oligarchs. What we need is a new nationalism, a new agenda to make the rule of the people real in this country and give the people America back. Give it back to them. Give it back to you. No more ruled by oligarchs, ruled by the people. That's what we've got to do. And I can tell you how I would start. I would start by breaking up the big tech corporations. Just break them up. So that's I would like to see the big tech corporations broken up as much as anybody else. But the solution to the problems we're facing isn't necessarily trust busting, a busting, although I do think we need a lot, a little bit of an, uh, a Teddy Roosevelt injection into the Republican Party. For starters. Yeah, for starters. But that's just a start. I, I pulled up the uh, the Bing search engine uh, a few minutes ago before the show started. And of oh, course, this was this was ridiculous. Yeah. So obviously we're celebrating International Women's Day today. OK, that's that's great. And they've got a giant rainbow flag right in the middle of the search engine. So obviously the but it's a, and a mural in the that's just one part of it. That's in the middle of a giant mural featuring Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right. Right. It's not political at all. Obviously not political at all. But the, the rainbow flag is, is obviously throwing a bone to those who believe that transgender women are women. And that's the point that they're trying to make. This is something that obviously it undermines if we actually want to help women, if we actually want to empower women, take the, the women in, uh, in sports example, the women in college sports, allowing transgender, allowing men who have trans, transitioned to women to compete. And uh, it's obviously undermining women, uh, female empowerment. And being does it, obviously they don't care. They're on the bandwagon with the LGBTQIA agenda. And, you know, they're not Google. They're run by Microsoft. So you could argue that breaking up big tech really wouldn't solve the cultural and social dilemma that we're facing in our country because if you break up Google, all these people who work for Google who are on board with the ideological purity that Google has tried to maintain for the social left, they'll just take that to their own separate companies and they'll push that agenda in you know with all their little smaller country, uh, companies. So I'm for trust busting, but we need to understand on the right – this is not the end-all, be-all as a solution to our decadent, degenerate situation that we're, that we're currently facing in the West. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of the really good speeches that were given at CPAC, and uh, we obviously don't have time to go through all the speeches that were given. We'd be here all day because it was a – what was it, a four-day? I believe it was a four-day conference. Uh, it's over the course of a weekend, so yeah, yeah, three, so was, three days, give or take. Or, it, I think it stares on Thursday, so yeah, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday. And then, and then Trump spoke on Sunday, so yeah, yep. it was a pretty, pretty long conference. So. Just basically wanted to hit the highlights, the more the more well-known, cover some of the more well-known names. Unfortunately, it, it only gets worse from here because uh, some of the people we're going to cover, they don't really – I don't think they understand 
Trump's ideology or they do understand it and they're purposely being seditious when it comes to trying to undermine what he what Donald Trump put forward. And you've got to understand you're not going to transfer radically transform a political party through one election. You've got people who run that party who have been there for decades and you can try to convince them to come over and support you to avoid getting Hillary Clinton elected, but you're not necessarily going to overturn their ideology through one presidency. And that brings us to a guy we talked about a couple episodes ago, yeah. Cancun Cruz, Cancun everybody. Cruise. So this, I, I remember watching actually a little bit of this on Fox News as it was happening, and I remember seeing a Chiron. I, I, it was on mute, so I didn't actually hear him, but the Chiron on Fox News literally said, Ted Cruz, we can and must unite conservatives and libertarians over a shared love of liberty. And I was just like, <laughs> oh, God, are we really doing this again, so, people? Yeah. After, have they not learned their lesson after 60 years that fusionism was a mistake? So this goes back. This goes kind of goes back to what we mentioned a couple of episodes ago. When we were talking about Cancun Cruz. Ted Cruz, he got elected in 2010. He uh, came, 2012, actually. 20, 2012. Yeah. So correct. two years late to the party. Correct. Yeah, he got elected in 2012. I was thinking 2010 because the Tea Party. That's when he it, did ride the Tea Party yeah, wave, yeah, but yeah. after it was popular. Yeah, he rode the Tea Party wave. He came. He, well, the only Senate candidate that I believe was endorsed by Ron Paul, and his whole. This we got to remember. This was at the age. This is the age of Richard Dawkins. So this is when the new atheism was ascendant, and Ted Cruz was trying to fuse conservatism. With the new atheist, think you know the new atheists who are coming of age, the millennials, by trying to convince them that they just need to be libertarians. We can all share the same country. We can all live and let live if we just embrace libertarianism. And he hasn't quite moved on from that. You know, the new atheism just isn't in vogue anymore. Nobody, nobody cares at this point. Uh, those people who supported that new atheistic movement of the, in the twenty in the early alts, they have moved on like they've become national and become nationalist many of them have converted to christianity um many of them have just jumped on the progressive bandwagon they've rode the now they're a uh, huge intersectionist so ted cruz never really moved on from that moment in his mind it's like he it's still 2010 so i will say this about cruz he's not he's not a neocon like he's not still stuck in the bush era stuck in the mccain era he is a little bit past that but he's still a decade behind the times and like we said, he still is trying to basically blend the Tea Party with the MAGA America First agenda. And that's just not going to work, Ted. It's not going to work. I'm telling you. And that was perfectly personified by this part of his speech. We don't believe in uniformity, but I'll tell you what can unite conservatives and libertarians and those who value the Constitution and the Bill of Rights is a love of liberty. The, the way he delivered that line, too, I'm, I'm just like, come on. Yeah, that's who we really need to guarantee victory for our movement is we need the Gary Johnson voters. That's who we <laughs> yeah. need. But the, see, the challenge for the right is no longer to unite conservatives and libertarians. Most libertarians uh, in 2010, like I said, have already found a way to make their libertarian and their libertarianism jive with American nationalism. Some have perverted to paleoconservatism, like the Pat Buchanan type, and then others have just jumped on the left with the Bernie craze and never looked back. The Libertarian Party, the actual official National Libertarian Party, is basically just dim light at this point. They've got like you know pink-haired feminists and transgenders sitting on their national on their committees and whatnot. It's mm -hmm. it's a total joke. It's basically a left-wing party now. The only libertarians at CPAC are the cringe Cato nerds, and we don't want to unite with them. We want to drive them as far away from the GOP as fast as is humanly possible. You know, in 2020, the New York Times reported that 60% of women named Karen voted for Joe Biden. 
So this this is seriously cringe. Uh, like anyone who understands the Karen mean knows that this was created by black people to basically mock white women that they consider problematic or racist. And it's just basically used as a bludgeon to attack all white women. It's kind of like if you were to if, if racist white people were to find a black common black name, I don't know, uh, Tamika, and just start calling every problematic black woman a Tamika. A Central Park Tamika. Yeah. <laughs> just yes. like a Central Park Karen. Right, right. So oh, it's kind of, it's man. a it's a very, very racist term. And Cruz doesn't I don't think he knows that. I think he just I think like a lot of people who are in their bubble, they don't understand. They're just completely oblivious to anti white racism because they can't imagine a society in which white people aren't in charge. The problem, too, is that, well, the, the Karen meme worked for a while because it was accurate because we know Karens in our lives. We absolutely, the I need to speak to your manager, like that's, we know people like that and we've encountered people like that. So memes that are based on reality, it's like some of the other white stereotype memes, like the meme of Kyle, you know, the meme of the white trash dude who drinks monster energy and <laughs> yeah. likes to punch through drywalls. Like those memes are effective because they are partially true. But yeah, like you said, Karen and some of the others are weaponized to be used as just anti-white racial terms. Yeah, but the whole thing, like, I want to speak to the manager, that thing was created, that idea was created. She wanted to speak to the manager because she wanted to complain about black people in the store. And then it was taken by white people who were oblivious to that. And they were like, oh, yeah, I know I know this woman who's this, this middle-aged white woman who's really annoying. She must be a Karen. She's always wanting to speak to the manager. But it was kind of it was kind of taken by white people and made palatable to them so it wouldn't make them feel offended. And then they ran with it. And that's kind of, I think, where Cruz is at. So then uh, the, Karen, the Karen thing that Cruz makes, it kind of ties into all th his entire speech was really, really bad. Like, I'm not just being I'm not nitpicking. If you go back and watch the entire speech, it was it, he was all over the place. Like he made one line where he said, Bernie is wearing mittens and AOC is claiming that she was murdered. And it didn't really have anything to do with like, what is Bernie's wearing mittens? And AOC is claiming she was murdered because AOC is not claiming she was murdered. Being weeks late to the meme. Like, it's just oh. – Yeah, and it doesn't – it doesn't. he just – he threw it in with a bunch of things that didn't make any sense. And it, it almost tried to sound like a, like a megachurch pastor. Like, that was, the, that was the vibe he was trying to give him. But, I was also getting vibes of what is up, fellow kids. Like, I know memes too. I, I, that's, that's basically <laughs> yeah, what that, that was. Cruz's whole thing is he's trying his best to sound cool to young people. And he made another line that was really outdated. He said – that he was talking about how in California they were pouring sand into skate parks to stop people from skating because, because of COVID. And he said uh, he said the, the idea, the concept of liberty is profoundly subversive. And he was arguing that somewhere there's some 19-year-old skater kid who sees this and he's like, I'm going to join the libertarians because this mayor is deciding to stop me from skating. But this, the, the only thing that the the skater dudes and libertarians have in common is that they both love weed. <laughs> That's literally it. The thing is, back in 2010, okay, yeah, in 2010, there were a few 19-year-old skater dudes around the country who were kind of apolitical. They were kind of rebellious or atheistic, and they would have been genuinely pissed off at the mayor pouring sand in their skate park. But nowadays, that that's not it's not like that. There, that doesn't exist. The skater dudes now have become totalitarians like they're the they're hardcore leftist hardcore intersectionalist leftist and so anything that the government tells them to do they're going to bend because this isn't this isn't the age of the rebellious 19 year old skater dude this isn't punk rock culture anymore like this is 90s culture and that ted cruz is trying to reference and it just it just doesn't work like it, it, ted needs to retire and he needs to go work in a think tank this is where he would best serve the cause of right-wing nationalism and constitutionalism but Moving on from uh, cringe can Cancun Cruz. Cruz, yeah, we can argue that he's, he's a little bit uh, stale and outdated and all, but 
at least his heart is in the right place, which is some, not what we can say about a lot of the speakers at CPAC. So Cruz is a relic of the Tea Party movement. Tom Cotton, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, is a relic of the George W. Bush neoconservative movement. And Tom Cotton is of the age where he came of age at a time when Republicans were neocons without knowing what neoconservatism was. So if you came of age in the 2000s, neoconservatism really kind of became a thing in the 90s by name. If you came of age in the 2000s, neoconservatism was conservatism. There was no alternative. So if you were on the right, well, yeah, you would just support the Iraq war because that's what everyone on the right did. The left was going bananas in their anti-war, anti-America hysteria. So you didn't want to side with them. So you would naturally gravitate toward the Bush-McCain side of things. If you don't support the war, then you must hate the troops. Right, right. And of course, Tom Cotton is is a veteran, which we thank him for his service. We're very glad that he served his country. Um, Of course. But the thing is, like a lot of veterans, like the one-eyed bandit from Texas, they still are stuck on the America is the greatest nation in the world and we have to spread our goodness to other countries by the edge of the sword. And it's really and this really comes out. So another aspect of neoconservatism is the uh, the corporatism and part of corporatism that they supported was the, the need for cheap labor. So. Obviously, we're aware of George W. Bush's push for amnesty. We're aware of, um, you know, many of the of McCain wanted to give amnesty to illegal immigrants. McCain wanted he was for a very strong legal immigration system in which we bring in. We accept the world's masses into this country and they'll come to America and they'll be enlightened to how wonderful America is. and They'll become good, patriotic American citizens. And this is this is something that definitely does not jive at all with nationalist conservatism and Trumpism there. This is something that is probably the most important fundamental difference between these two ideologies. And that's just that's just the tip of the iceberg of their open borders immigration agenda. They want to give amnesty to 15 to 20 million illegal aliens with no strings attached, with voting rights, presumably in time for what they hope will be Kamala Harris's reelection campaign. So he seems to get it like this. If you just hear that, if you're a Trump supporter, it's like, yeah, okay, this guy gets it, but. Now I've got news for the Democrats again. Turns out this open borders agenda is not very popular. You can see that in the polls about Joe Biden's plans. 2020 was one of the best elections we've ever had with Hispanic voters in particular and with immigrant voters in general. It reminds me of a story a friend of mine back home told me. He works with a first generation immigrant named Manuel. Manuel told him, My wife and both my boys and I all voted for Donald Trump. And my friend said, said, oh, you didn't vote for Donald Trump. And Manuel said, no, we voted for Trump. And my friend said, why'd you vote for Trump? And Manuel pointed at the parking lot and he said, have you seen my new pickup truck? And he said, did you know that both of my boys have full-time jobs now? And he said, said, you know, I'm not offended by what Donald Trump does. And like so many Americans across the country, he said, we have Donald Trump to thank for those things. So this is a great example of why working class Americans of Hispanic descent or any immigrant background would vote for an incumbent president. But notice it's all tied to material things in Mm -hmm. the economy. So if immigrants and their descendants vote solely based on the economy, all Democrats have to do is create an economy that works for immigrants and their descendants to get their votes. They're they're much easier to please than native-born Americans who care about other things like uh, social policy. 
abortion, limiting legal immigration so that their children can get full-time jobs and they can afford a brand new pickup truck in the parking lot. So it's it's all tied. Notice it's all tied to to materialism. So if fiscal conservatism, as always, it all ties back to oh, we just got to have your free markets. Like even though we talked about this in a previous episode, that one example, you know, Trump. Yes, Trump did very well among Hispanics. Republicans in general did very well among Hispanics. And when you take California and there are millions of first or second generation illegal Mexican immigrants out of the equation, he probably did much better on the national scale against Joe Biden among Latino voters. And one example was in Texas, in this border county called Zapatas County, that he, it's nor- towards the very southern tip of the state. He lost it to Hillary Clinton by 33 points in 2016. He won it against Joe Biden in 2020 by five points. That's a 38-point swing, mostly Hispanic county on the border. That, I can guarantee you, is not because the unemployment rate went down. That's not because, you know, the economy got better. That's because he shut the border down. Exactly. And, and it helps. Yes, absolutely. Hispanic Americans, Latino Americans, native-born of those ethnicities do support strict immigration policies. And, of course, Cotton is from Arkansas. So people in Arkansas don't really have to worry about the border. They've got Texas that can absorb a lot of those illegal immigrants and even the, the masses of legal immigrants who want to move to the country and work low-paying jobs. So, you know, Hispanics in Arkansas, they're going to just they're going to be looking at the economic benefits from it. And if we bring in all these Central Americans, their voting pattern is going to be based on economic benefits. And I actually had a conversation with a Pakistani lady a couple of days ago. Uh, She was talking about the stimulus. We were talking about the the stimulus that was passed and everything. And she was asking me if I had gotten my fourteen hundred dollars yet. And I said, no, I don't think anybody has. I think that it'll be it'll be coming a little bit later. And she said, yeah, they're going to they're going to give everyone fifteen dollars an hour. And I was thinking, uh, say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bite. I said, oh, really? They're gonna raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars? Yes, yes. Everybody is gonna make fifteen dollars an hour because we have a new president now, and he's gonna give everyone fifteen dollars an hour. And so you think about this is this is all you have to do if you want to get the votes of all these new Americans that are come here. You just got to go tell them, you know. And this is what I've talked to other people around the D.C. area who are of Hispanic descent, and they would argue that Joe, they're voting for, they were gonna vote for Biden because. Under Trump, their taxes went up, and under Trump, Biden, their taxes will go down. It doesn't make any sense, obviously, but that's what they're told. So all you got to do, if you're you work for the DNC, that's all you got to do is you got to put out economic talking points to immigrant communities and explain. You can just make up stuff if you want to. Um, you know, they're not gonna. A lot of them aren't gonna go fact check. They're just hearing what their family members told them, and their family members were told this by a Democratic American, by American native-born American Democrats. So they just repeat the talking points, and they go vote D. And this is the if it's all based on the economy and it's not based on anything else, immigrants are very easy to please in this regard. And this is why Democrats and Republicans want massive numbers of immigrants who are working class immigrants. So is it any wonder that people like him, immigrants who obeyed our laws and came here the right way, who earned their citizenship and earned the right to vote, are some of our most patriotic and loyal Americans? People who escaped oppression from countries like Cuba or Venezuela or China. More than ever, we need that kind of simple, unambivalent, unashamed patriotism. The proud love of a great country. So he, Tom Cotton is making the the most brazen argument for massive legal immigration I've ever heard by a Republican senator. Uh, he's basically trying. It's almost like he's trying to convince America First nationalists that we need more legal immigrants because they're patriotic. They've recognized oppression from where they come from, and they're going to appreciate a great patri- a great country, and they're going to become great American patriots who are going to vote for uh, politicians like Donald Trump. 
But he's using communist countries or semi-quasi-communist countries like Venezuela as an example. And again, this goes back to the Cold War mentality. And during the Cold War, we welcomed immigrants from communist countries because we recognized that they were fleeing oppression. The Cold War is over. These, you know, we don't need to support the poor, downtrodden people of Eastern Europe who are trying to escape oppression anymore. We're not facing down the Soviet Union. We're not in an ideological fight to try to convince the world that capitalism is better than communism. So maybe Manuel is patriotic for America, but I've had a had another encounter with an immigrant from Mexico. This was actually four years ago, right after I moved to the D.C. area. He was an Uber driver. And he was he had on his arm. He had tattooed "We the People" in the script that the Declaration of Independence is written in. And I thought, hey, I like your tattoo. It's pretty neat. He said, yeah. And he was talking about how much he loves America, about how much opportunity you can find in America. How he's made so much money in America. How you got freedom and liberty. And he was you know, all the all the good talking points. He was a hardcore conservative, great great patriotic guy. And but he mentioned something else that made me think. He said, my family doesn't like this. I said what the the tattoo. I said, yeah, they don't, they don't like the tattoo. I, I get a lot of grief from them for having this tattoo on. I said, your family back in Mexico? No, 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 my family here. And I thought, wait a minute. So I said, why does your family not like it? Oh, they, they, they think that America is racist. They think this that the Declaration of Independence is racist. They don't like it. I tattooed it on my arm. So his family moved to the United States from Mexico, became legal immigrants. They're probably voting citizens, and they believe that our founding document is racist, and they're pissed off that their family member who also lives here tattooed it on his arm because he wants to show that he's a patriotic American. So this is the kind of stuff you're getting when you invite, you have chain migration, you have you know people coming from countries. Look, Mexican history doesn't jive with American history. For we, every one based immigrant, you get like 10 leftists. Yes, and not even leftists. A lot, you got to remember, we invaded Mexico. Mexico. Mexico has been nursing this grievance against the United States for the past, what's been 170 years since we invaded Mexico and humiliated them. So a lot of people, if you just let in masses of people from other countries, same with India, a lot of Indians are still nursing grievances against the West, even though we had nothing to do with that, just because they were colonized by Britain. So this is something that you have to take into consideration that these people, they're not, we, we think of immigrants, Republicans think of immigrants as a bunch of Cubans fleeing Castro. That, that's the very, very tiny percent of immigrants who come from other countries. And, it you know, this is something this is some Tom Cotton just doesn't get it. Maybe he does get it. And he's just being facetious, just being trying to undermine the America first agenda. I don't really know. The proud love of a great country because America truly is a great country. It is worth fighting for. It is worth dying for. And it is worth defending our history. These. These radical liberals, they want to erase our history. They want to replace it with their crazy Marxist theories. They may say that it's about the Civil War or racism. Don't believe them. Look at what's happening in San Francisco. They're trying to rename schools named after George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. So if all immigrants care about is whether they can buy a brand new truck and their boys can get full-time jobs, they're not going to care if people tear down statues of American history or rename schools. They're just here for the money. As long as the protesters in the streets don't harm them or their property or their families, they're good. You know, they don't they don't have any kind of emotional attachment to Abraham Lincoln. Who, who's Abraham Lincoln to them? Abraham Lincoln is nobody to immigrants who move here. Again, you know, they're just they're moving here for the money. They don't care about. They have their own history. They have their own their own national heroes from the country they came from. Now, their children and grandchildren will. They will honor American heroes, that is, the heroes that they're taught to honor in American schools, 
which is why it's so important that we dominate American history in the classroom and we don't let the left redefine American history and American heroes. But the the point he's trying to make is lost. He's trying to again, he's trying to tie in the desire to bring in more legal immigrants and try to make try to open up conservatives to be in open to legal immigration to tie it into defending our history. The two don't jive like you can't have the and it, it goes all the back way back 100 years ago. Italian immigrants, they didn't care who George Washington was. Irish immigrants, they couldn't care less who Thomas Jefferson was. Now, their descendants eventually became patriotic Americans who loved George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Thomas Jefferson because American schools nationalized them. But in the current situation where American schools aren't nationalizing anybody, in fact, they're denationalizing Americans, even Americans whose ancestry goes back to the 1700s, then it's dangerous to bring in mass numbers of immigrants because not only are the immigrants themselves just going to be here for the money, they're not going to care if statues are being torn down. Their children are probably going to join in with the crowds and pull down the statues. And so this – it doesn't really it, – it, it, the two don't really make any sense to combine them together. But that is that is uh, uh, the neoconservative or the neo neoconservative Tom Cotton. Uh, moving on to a genuine neoconservative, someone who came didn't come of age when neoconservatism was the only kind of conservatism around. Someone who genuinely believes in this stuff. It's former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. So the entire gist of Mike Pompeo's speech is he's talking about America first, and he's trying to sell neoconservatism to Trump supporters under the guise of America first. You can't sanction the Ayatollah in Iran, and you can't stop sending pallets of gas to the leadership. There'll be a war. Well, we did, and there wasn't a war. We were told, we were told you can't move the United States Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. There'll be a war. Well, we did, and there was not a war. We were told we were told you can't allow Israel to have its rights in Judea and Samaria and in the Golan Heights. There'll, there'll be war. Well, we, we did that. We, we, we righted that. And there was no war. So how many of you remember Qasem Soleimani, Allah rest his soul? That's pretty funny, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit. This was funny. the Iranian general who was trying to cause trouble for America. He was on a mission to harm Americans. But we were a few steps ahead of him. So in the end, he didn't cause trouble for Americans or anyone else ever again. So just the simple, the simple mindedness. Qasem Soleimani was trying to cause trouble for Americans, but he didn't cause trouble for Americans or anyone else. So we took care of him. Yeah, they all, they all cheer him. That's the thing. They're cheering. It is, this is kind of the meme that a lot of people criticize Trump support, supporters for. They, Trump would talk about bringing the troops home, ending the wars. They'd cheer, yay, America first. Let's focus on America. And then Trump's talk like, I just bombed. I, I just, we're going to bomb Iran. We're going to uh, rain fire and fury down on these people. I just took out Qasem Soleimani. Yay, war. They all cheer. And it doesn't, the two do not jive. It's like there's serious cognitive dissonance between these two positions. You can't support bringing the troops out of Iraq. And at the same time, 
support bombing an Iranian general in Iraq. That is Iran's backyard. I mean, I will push back on that a little bit. I mean, obviously, Soleimani was a scumbag and he was a terrorist. And, you know, I, I can't say I feel any sympathy for him. And again, granted, under Trump's leadership, we didn't go to war. Under any other president, that would have immediately led to war with Iran. We would have gone all in and gone to war, just like the Syrian airstrikes. Trump was able to pull them off without actually sending our boys into Syria. So I, I, I am willing to forgive that a little bit. But I see the point you're making that Pompeo is essentially trying to argue yeah, America first means we go bomb terrorists, which like, yeah, cool, bomb terrorists, but that's not America first. That's just neoconservatism by another another name. Right. I don't have any sympathy for Soleimani. I mean, he's, I'm like like you said, like he was responsible because their interests clashed with our interests at the time. He obviously his militias were responsible for killing Americans. But my argument is with the simplicity that this is sold to us. Like there's this. There's this guy over in the Middle East, and he was causing trouble, so we're going to go kill him. He won't cause any more trouble. Okay, that sounds good. All right, moving on. Uh, and it really – this is this is the same mentality that caused a lot of Republicans to be duped into supporting the Iraq war. And it's, it just it reduces everything down to a very simplistic – you know, a simplistic explanation. Moving on, he, he, it gets worse. When the Syrians gassed children and women, and we told them don't do that again, and when they crossed it, President Trump ordered 70-plus beautiful American-made Tomahawk missiles to let them know that we weren't going to allow them to kill women and children. America first. America first takes real courage, takes a Secretary of State willing to walk into a room and tell it like it is, and a president who will have his back. We had that. Well, that's, that's quite a bit of a... Multiple pats on your own back there, Mike. <laughs> chill, chill out a little bit, okay? I get, we get it. At this point, you do want to run for president, but you're supposed to be a little more subtle about it than that, man. Come on. I was, I was a soldier about uh, 25, 30 years ago, and about 100 pounds ago too. <laughs> and when I hear Democrats say they want a strong America, I, I, I know that they are working to undermine it. Sadly, mark my word, they're going to gut the defense budget that we worked so hard to build. They'll do it to pay for their Green New Deal. Kind of makes me mad, right? They're going to trade Army Green for AOC Green. That is a bad, bad trade. And as I said before, our young men and women, we don't want to put them in harm's way. We don't want them to go to war. But when we're weak at home, when we don't stand up for our military, the risk of war increases when deterrence fades. We cannot let that happen. Look, an America first uh, Department of Defense wouldn't need a budget three times the size of China's. And, uh, you know, whether the budget gets trimmed under under gets slightly trimmed under a Democratic administration really is kind of the least of our worries uh, that we've got a lot of other issues that we're trying to, you know, that we're, we're basically trying to have artistic freedom in this country without big tech and uh, the corporations crushing us. So whether or not our military budget goes from like, what, 800 billion to 825 billion, we're still going to be able to kick China's ass if we need to in any kind of war. And what's what's interesting, I found this article from back in 2002. This is right after, this is right after 9-11. Uh, it was talking about how there's so much waste in the Pentagon. There's $2.3 trillion, so $8,000 for every man, woman and child in America. That was simply unaccounted for in the 90s. They, you know, they just they just kind of went up missing. And I mean, we know where all this went. It's going. A lot of it's just going to, to contractors. They, 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 you have all these plush deals with, with military contractors. A lot of that money just gets wasted on on very high salaries with these contractors and these companies that work for the government. If we cut back on the waste, we could cut back on military spending and not have to sacrifice 
our defense capabilities, but also we could we could afford to bring a lot of our troops home. Like let's bring home the troops that are in Europe. We don't need to defend Europe anymore since the Soviet Union is around. We could we could afford to the Defense Department could afford to take a little bit of a of a pay cut. We don't necessarily need we we could get by on seven hundred and fifty billion. So this is something. This is this is one thing that Kelly Loeffler was trying to argue uh, in the Georgia Senate race. I listened to a clip on Fox News, and she was saying, if the Democrats win in Georgia, they will cut defense spending. They will cut the budget of the military. I'm like, I mean, people are kind of, they would prefer that they, you say that you're going to send them $2,500 a month instead of $2,000 a month. I don't think most people really care in the middle of a pandemic whether or not the defense budget gets trimmed by a few billion. So uh, Mike Pompeo is making, he's arguing America First does this, America First does that to the audience. And he's bringing up all these things that the Trump that the, uh, the Trump administration did, and most of the stuff that he's bringing up that the Trump administration did, Trump was heavily criticized for by his base. Among these, uh, you know, bombing Syria, uh, killing Soleimani, uh, and you know, particularly Syria. That was one of the most obnoxious things that he did. Because and Pompeo is arguing that we were going to send a message that America would not stand by and allow women and children to be gassed. All right, okay. Uh, let let's. I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories or anything. Let's say that. The intel was correct, and uh, Bashar al-Assad, actually, his his regime actually was behind the gassing of women and children. And a lot of people made this argument. You know, there were just a, there a handful of people that were di- that died in that. What about all the hundreds and hundreds of thousands who died from conventional weapons? You know, if America is going to step in and stop a gas attack that kills a few dozen, don't we also have the moral obligation to step in and stop hundreds of thousands from being killed in a civil war? And you know, this just goes on and on and on until you reach the point where you got to say, yeah, America should be the world's police force. At that point, you've lost all semblance of America first. So if you're going to truly be America first, you have to say we – our military should not do anything, should not be engaged in anything that does not put the interests of America first. If it does not involve the United States of America, that's where we draw the red line. And you know, if you've got a dictator in a civil war and he's using unconventional weapons, I'm sorry, but that doesn't in any way affect America. And this is, this is a very, very subtle attempt on Mike Pompeo's part to try to sell – neoconservatism to Republicans under the guise of America first. And I feel like you're going to see this over and over and over again. You got people, Pompeo, you know, for all his, you know, all all his uh, high points, he was never really a Trumpian America first guy. He was someone who was competent, which is why Trump hired him to do a job. He was never on the same ideological wavelength with Trump, like most of the people that Trump hired, who Trump hired simply because they were good at administration. And that was the reason why, you know, Trump gets a lot of criticism for the people he hired, but that's the reason why he hired these people. And I think you're going to see this moving forward. A lot of people are going to try to use the terminology America first to try to bring the Republican Party back to its neoconservative early 21st century roots. And this is something people are going to have to watch out for. So to finish this off, we go to another congressman that you guys probably heard of by the name of Jim Jordan. He's from Ohio. He's seen as one of the, the leading figures of the Freedom Caucus. He's on quite a few fairly powerful committees as a ranking member. He, he's a favorite on Fox News and a lot of people. So he, he he's kind of part of that Tea Party-esque crowd, although he came around actually a little bit early. He was elected in the year 2006, actually, which was actually a very a bad year for Republicans. That was when Pelosi's wave took over. But he's been a big fixture in that Tea Party scene, that Fox News circuit. And he's been, to his credit, he's been a pretty loyal ally of President Trump over the course of his entire presidency. So then he gave a speech on uh, addressing cancel culture. You know, again, that was the main theme of CPAC this year, where he said this. Do you have a functioning First Amendment when only one side's allowed to talk? Do you have free speech when the left controls what can be said? They want to be able to say whatever they can about us, but we're not allowed to talk. 
They want to be able to lie about us. We're not allowed to tell the truth about them. And you know why I think they really are out to cancel us? You know why they really come after us? They don't like the fact that we tell the truth. They don't like the fact that we point out the double standard. We point out the fact Nancy Pelosi can go to the salon, but we can't. She can walk around the metal detectors. We got to walk through them. Gavin Newsom, Gavin Newsom can go to a five-star restaurant with his family, with the lobbyist, but we can't have our family over for Thanksgiving. So if you go back and watch the whole clip, obviously for time purposes, we don't play the, the full speeches or anything like that. But if you go back and watch that clip, and we'll link to it in the description, uh, in the, our podcast description, he lists a bunch of cultural items that were canceled by the internet mob and BLM. But then he segs into, you know, governors stopping people from eating. He segs into government. And this is this is something that we see among conservatives over and over and over again. They do not understand what cancel culture is. They continually try to tie in small government conservatism in with the solutions that we need to fight cancel culture. You're not going to fight cancel culture by having a small government, con uh, you know, being small government conservatives. This is literally what we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Exactly. This is, hey, I'm all for low taxes. I'm all for low regulations on businesses. That's all great. But that doesn't have anything to do with cancel culture. And at the beginning of Tom Cotton's speech, Cotton actually makes the same thing. He talks about we see we see how the totalitarian left there uh, through cancel culture, wokeism, uh, political correctness. It's all the same thing. Goes it, it's like no, no boomer. It's not all the same thing. <laughs> okay, it's, okay, boomer. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like this stuff. They're not related. Big government and cancel culture have absolutely nothing in common with one another. It's sure they're both about people wanting to control other people's lives. But you got to understand the left understood years ago that it that the free market and free enterprise is a much more effective tool at re, at changing a society's culture than the government. If you want to change the society's culture, it's much easier to do that with mobs and corporate billion dollar co corporations than it is with elected representatives who can be voted out in the next election. The thing is, we don't vote. Uh, the society society as a whole doesn't vote on the board of directors for, I guess, Seuss publications or whatever. Uh, but we can vote our congressmen out. And this is why the left is turning to the free market to ram through their social agenda because they see that it's much more effective. But Jim Jordan, he just – he doesn't get it. Like he's trying to tie in and we see this all through CPAC. These speakers are trying to tie in the tyranny that small businesses are facing from governors and mayors into cancel culture. They're trying to tie in the tyranny, the COVID tyranny, the, the soft COVID tyranny that American consumers are facing, you know, ha having to wear a mask, even if you're in the middle of nowhere in a gas station, stuff like that, with cancel culture. And the two are completely separate. And this is why the Republican Party, a lot of people look at the – they're very unhappy with the way that America is going. They're very unhappy with the totalitarian nature of cancel culture. But they look at the Republican Party and they're like, nah, I'm good. I'm just going to stay apolitical. Because the Republican Party isn't offering any genuine solutions. The only way to defeat cancel culture is to hit it at the root. And this is what we see. And uh, this is like Seuss, like the Seuss, the Seuss company we talked about earlier, Dr. Seuss. That company, they're arguing that because he was insensitive, they need to cancel his works. 
you're not going to win this culture war by saying, well, we don't need it. Let's just put context around it. It's like a lot of conservatives. And this is what I had. A, I overheard another conversation in D.C. It's funny. You know, this is why I love living in D.C. So for not just the standard of living, but also you get to overhear so many Politico conversations that you normally wouldn't hear in other parts of the country. There was this uh, young political operative who was obviously Republican. It was uh, he was talking to someone. He was talking about uh, statues, like Confederate statues. And this uh, the person he was talking to was obviously from the South. She was talking about how it made her so mad that they were taking down Confederate statues. And he argued, well, I, I think we should leave them up, but we should provide context for them. And I was thinking that's the exact argument that the left made ten years ago. So what you, what you see, you see a pattern here. The left will make an argument. It's outlandish, and then. They eventually win that argument. They move on to something more totalitarian and Republicans, rather than saying, no, we need to completely we need to go back 50 years. They will go back 10 years and say, no, let's just provide context. They're making the same arguments that the left made 10 years ago. And this is for statues it's per, for pretty much everything. And it's this in it's this incapability to confront the ideology that claims America is a racist society. It's this refusal to combat the idea that diversity makes America stronger. And until Republicans are willing to take this problem on at the root and continue to try to clip away at the leaves and the branches and attack the symptoms, they're going to continue to get steamrolled. Just because at this point, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think this this strategy of attacking the symptoms of cancel culture and trying to tie the symptoms into fighting cancel culture and with small government conservatism, I don't think that's going to work because there's enough voters, especially Gen Xers and millennial voters who are like, look, you either argue for big government solutions to defeat cancel culture, or we will do to you what we did to you in Georgia. We not only will stay home on election day, but we will go out and vote for Democrats. Because at this point, if I'm going to have someone in office who believes that America's history is racist, who believes that we need more legal immigration, who believes that diversity makes America stronger, I would rather that person be a Democrat rather than vote in a Republican who's going to say, yeah, yeah I'm going to concede all the points to the left. But I want a 35% marginal tax rate rather than a 39% marginal tax rate. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll take the 39% marginal tax rate and take full-on left-wing, what do they call it, like uh, social Marxism. I'll take that with a real social Marxist rather than someone who's just in it for money and in it for themselves, like the what we're hearing from Republicans. Being from California, I totally understand exactly what you're saying. That California Republican Party is one of the biggest jokes in the country because they basically became democrat light. When And a lot of people just looked at it and said, why vote for a fake Democrat Party when you can just vote for the real thing? So that is definitely one of the first things that needs to be done if we're going to even begin to attempt to fight cancel culture, let alone fight cancel culture directly. But that is all the time we have left for this very fun, action-packed, CPAC-packed episode of The Right Take. Tune in next week. We'll talk to you next time, guys.